0: welcome to the big mike fun podcast where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive roi and secure retirement profits so pour yourself a cup of coffee grab a notepad and lean in because big mike has got the life starting now
1: welcome to the big mike fun podcast i'm the big mike mike zlatnik today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome Fuquan Bilal. Hi, Fuquan.
0: Hey, what's going on, Mike? Thanks for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, Fuquan is a good friend. Uh, We are in a couple of masterminds together, the Collective Genius and the Freedom Founders. He's a super, super bright guy. Uh, He lives in the uh, neighboring state, New Jersey. Yes. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about you, Fuquan, your family, kids, cats, dogs, I don't know, other pets.
0: All right, no, no cats and dogs. When I, was, when I was a kid, I had a dog. I had a, a cat named Mousy.
1: Fun. <laughs> All right. I mean, as long as the cat didn't mind being called that.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, I have uh, two kids, a 17-year-old, 12-year-old, and uh, I'm a single dad, actually. And I live in Livingston, New Jersey, but my office is in uh, Clifton, New Jersey. I've been investing in New Jersey for the last 20 years, uh, doing fix and flips and rentals uh, primarily in uh, five counties uh, and I, I like it you know it's it, you know gives me my feeling of importance to know that I can go in a community where I'm from I'm from North, New Jersey and have the ability to revitalize the area and put these uh dilapidated properties back on the tax road so you know I love real estate I'm excited about it and I'll also do some notes though we'll talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I've known you as the notes specialist. You're running um, a distressed notes fund, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So in
0: 2011, uh, well after the market crash, and you know, I kind of pivoted over the short sales. And then in 2011, I discovered the wonderful world of notes. And to me, still to this day, is the best investment strategy in the universe, I believe, because you can do it from your laptop, cell phone. And again, it's impact investing. So you're able to help homeowners stay in their house. And essentially, you become the bank. So that's what I liked about it. Uh, It's another area where I was able to help people and make profit. So, um, you know, I created a fund in 2013. And the fund originally was strictly for notes. And actually, my first three funds that I did was all notes. And the fund that I'm running now currently is a hybrid model of real property and notes. And it it played a a really important role, uh, you know, under the current circumstances, Uh, to have that hybrid flexibility and have different assets in the fund where you can derive income from performing notes, from selling notes, from cash flow from rent, and also uh, cash injections from uh, fix and flips. So I kind of like the hybrid strategy.
1: That makes sense. I mean, we have a mixed fund, two-tempo opportunity fund. Sometimes this mixed strategy doesn't work uh, as well. Uh, Sometimes it does. I, I can tell you that, I don't know if you've experienced this, uh, And I don't know if you have any growth projects. If you have only rental properties and they're generating good cash flow, then it's probably not as as much of a concern. But we mix up value-add projects that generate effectively yield drag. If you invest in construction, most uh, sponsors or most operators write it off in the current year if they are allowed to, as much as they can. I don't know if if you have this issue where you buy properties, you innovate them, and you have to basically show a paper loss on a property. Uh, because you're writing off the construction. And then that gets offset against the other income from the notes. Just curious if you've, if you've seen this issue uh, in your fund or, or not. It, it, it's not a unique issue, but it is a potential issue to mix strategy when you're mixing notes with equity investments, and equity investments have a value-add or renovation component to it.
0: Yeah, so the, the buy and hold stuff is light renovation work, but we won't go in and do a $100,000 renovation project on something we want to rent. So it's light rehab stuff, and most of the time it already has cash flow in place, and we're just going and doing improvements, you know, exterior stuff, you know, we just took down a property and we're just cleaning it up while we're still generating income. Uh, on the other side, the flips, you know, those are affordable homes, and these are projects that, again, are, are not large, innovation projects that's going to drag, you know, and cause gotcha. of, you know yield drag. So um, we kind of try to stay away from that. We look at an accelerated model because we don't want to have yield drag and go to that uh, that scenario that you discussed. So yeah, we we want to uh, always have liquidity in our fund so we can take advantage of any opportunity that's out there. So we try not to deploy capital on projects that we think that's going to take long and not give us the opportunity to take advantage of other, you know, stuff, so.
1: Makes sense. Just curious, what kind of returns have you been generating to your investors?
0: Yeah, so this fund, actually, we just launched this fund in December, and it was, it was uh, you know, really challenging because of, you know, what we went through in the beginning of the year, uh, and trying to really... You know, find opportunities and, and, and make it happen was, was a bit tough, but we, we still did it. I mean, and this fund we're generating right now, uh, close to 11% on the fund level, uh, which is not bad given the first quarter that we went through when everything pretty much slowed down and almost came to a halt. Uh, we were fortunate, though, that the rentals that we have in our fund are government-backed. So we have programs with Section 8, Bad Women and Children. So those checks kept coming in. Um, You know, the small portion of delinquencies that we did see were from people who lost their job, but most of those guys got back on track and we worked something out with them. Um, Even if they're on unemployment now, we kind of reworked the rent so they can continue to pay. Um, But we were very fortunate. On the performing side, we thought we were going to see a major impact on the loans going delinquent, but, you know, we had uh, less than, I would say, 3% of something the last time I checked, which was May 15th, a month ago almost. He's, they're still paying. So uh, we haven't really been that affected, but, you know, we're doing, you know, close to 11% on a fund level. So that's for the first quarter.
1: So uh, great results, given the um, circumstances, uh, the COVID environment, for sure. Um, and... Now, Section 8 and any kind of government subsidies, music to my ears today. People love this stuff. <laughs> Before, like, oh, Section 8, little rough neighborhood. I so, know.
0: I know. It's,
1: it's, it's, listen, it's a community redevelopment opportunity. You're helping the folks in the community, and, and at the same time, it's safe. I mean, the government writes you a check. It feels a whole lot better than for, than versus you know, a traditional rental where somebody gets unemployed. Although now they've been getting fat checks from the government. I don't know how long it's gonna continue. But
0: um, Yeah, we're all in the same boat. I think that the big stigma behind Section Eight and low uh, low income housing government backed programs were that the quality of the people wasn't thought of as the ideal tenant. But there's some good people who are getting who's getting assistance. And you have some people who they pay a portion of the rent and then the government pay a portion. They actually work. So, just really vetting the tenant, whether they're 100% government backed or not, is is key in making sure that you have the right tenant in place. You know, if they keeping the property clean, if they're you know, helping instead of destroying. So, that's some of the stuff that we look for when we you know, rent our units.
1: I think it's, it's a great management work. Where, wherever, do you self manage or do you still? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you self manage? Yeah. I mean,
0: in my 20 experience, I have not found, and I know they're out there. I haven't found a company that would uh, do the things that I would like to do the way that I would do it, Um, you know, from managing my own real estate, from my personal portfolio when I first started and dealing with tenants and everything. We tried, we tried, but we we haven't found a company that can execute, uh, have great response time, pay bills on time and efficiently. So, you know, we manage capital from investors and we need to make sure that, these mortgages get paid and everything else. Because we have leverage in the fund as well. Um, it's a debt fund, so it's uh, IRA-friendly. There's no UBIT. Uh, but, you know, we haven't found a property management company that here to step up to the, to the task that we have as yet. Hopefully one day we will, but until then we will self-manage.
1: Uh, these are the words of a wise man. <laughs> All I'm going to say is that my observation is very similar. I'm here in New York and... I was right, and in my investments outside of New York, it's the same observation. You tolerate them. For best-case scenario, you get a semi-decent manager. Uh, during uh, some initial period of time, they do okay job. And after a while, they either get lazy, or they get corrupt, uh, or a combination of the, uh, of the above, uh, and then they, uh, they start milking you with fees. And at the times, it's really hard unless you start checking the manager, uh, it becomes a complicated, a difficult challenge. So property management uh, generally is a tough business. And I can tell you that they, there are a lot of the management companies' incentives is uh, repairs, and then they, they, they send the contracts to their bodies, and then they effectively overcharge uh, for the repair work. That That is the common theme. I'm not saying anything other than, it's human nature, and that's the business. Uh, it, it, the fees they collect generally for the management is not enough to them. So this is my observation. If they, if they d- didn't have other opportunities, they wouldn't be in the management business. So I don't know. It's a little one-sided statement, um, uh, but it's, it's just hard. Or they just get sloppy. Some these companies who, uh, if they if they want if you want good service, it's going to cost you a little more than the management fees. These repair contracts uh, will be you know or repair situations will cost you more than they should. That's why self-management, if you can, is the most optimal way to, uh, to manage them and to get better better return. So I don't know. If you have any comments. Yeah, it's, the- it's, it's really not that
0: challenging if you have the right tools and systems in place, right? We use that fully. We leverage VAs, uh, virtual assistants. To manage their process, we have Podio as well to automate a lot of the workflows. Um, You know, whether it's telling the tenant happy birthday, any birthday, whether it's reminding them for bulk trash days, whatever it is, it's all automated. So you can spend the time, which is really the most challenging thing, is spending the time putting it all together, right? And then it's just improving it to make it better. But if you set up uh, systems and processes, it makes it easier to manage data than manage people. Um, And then, as you mentioned, the biggest challenge is the repair is making sure that they're done at a cost where it's not big into your profit. So, you know, if you can get all that on the wraps, like I don't have all the answers. I mean, I've been doing this 20 years. I'm still learning stuff. But um, uh, if, if you can get that under control, it can be very, very profitable for you, especially the areas where we are investing at. And you know, these are C plus B class areas, uh, cat rates between, you know, 8 and 9 percent. Uh, you know, typically what I'm seeing now it's it's somewhere between three hundred and fifty to five hundred per door, and we usually would go if we get a, a property that's worth uh, three hundred and fifty thousand. Uh, maybe we're into it for about $275,000 max. So we have fifty thousand plus in equity, plus somewhere between three hundred and fifty to five hundred per door. That's our buy box. Um, we've been pretty consistent with that. Uh, it's a lower end area, but you know we have we have the uh, the equity there if we need to uh, you know, recapitalize it and pay an investor back and, and lower the, the cost of capital because we pay our investors 10% and we get money from the secondary markets somewhere around 6%. So a lot of the times we you will know, refinance out, pay off an investor, we have a cash call and pretty much go from there.
1: That makes sense. So you, your model, just to be clear, you, you acquire, whether you go in the fund or, or just into your own portfolio, you renovate, you create... Um, some sweat equity effectively through the work and then uh the cap rate is i mean these are pretty good cap rates i, I don't i know new jersey has a whole lot better cap rates well better higher cap rates than new york um but eight nine cap rates uh is not bad and, w- and these properties uh what's the typical price is it single family or multi-family what's these, these are multi-family
0: these are all multi-families three families uh some of them are two families and uh, the purchase price to to well the ARV is somewhere between three fifteen three fifty somewhere around there. Uh, we a lot of these properties like I have one now. I give you it's a two family I just purchased for one hundred and twenty thousand. Uh, it's eighty thousand renovations worth three fifteen. Uh,
1: so two hundred all in, and three fifteen is the value. Yeah. Yep. Oh, it's, it's great. Value. They're creating yeah. a third of a mm-hmm. value. Yeah. You can yeah. refi. Probably get all the money out whatever you, you yep. put in.
0: So, and I did that one. That one is not in the fund. That's one I did with uh, an investor who uh, they do a lot of real estate. I have sidecar deals that I do. I've taken out a portfolio. If it's not in the fund, I typically try to look for three families and above. So, if I do find an opportunity that's a two-family, but it still has good equity and good cash flow, then that would be a one-off deal I'll do with an investor. You know, they'll put up the money, and then, you know, I'll refinance it out, pay the money back, and pretty much go from there. So, we do have those situations. but uh, it's all in, in C plus B class areas,
1: you know. That no, makes sense. Uh, the fact that they are, uh, these prices are, I mean, I, I would imagine that have to be you know worse areas, like a C minus. But the C plus B range, it's not, not bad at all. Uh, yeah, this
0: area is coming together. This is uh, one particular area we're talking about is the Water of a town that I, that I buy a lot of tax leads. And, you know, five years ago, no one wanted to invest here. Now everyone is running door knocking and everything because it's not that much opportunity in Newark. And the opportunity that's there, you'll find the same property for 400000 uh when You can buy, you know, something cheaper. It has the same cash flow. And the area is becoming, you know, it's better now. A lot of the light properties are being renovated now. So it's not that much. You know, people are not looking down on the area anymore because it's more New York-based tenants. We're taking all the guys from New York coming in, Mike.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say now <laughs> Brooklyn and no. the
0: Bronx for the cheaper rents over here. That's increasing our rents. You know, I used to get nine hundred dollars for a two-bedroom three years ago. Right now, I get fourteen hundred dollars. Three years later, I'm able to get fourteen hundred dollars for a two-bedroom because of the migration we have coming from New York, and that's nothing. To a New Yorker, $1,400 for a two bedroom. I mean, I mean, nice. Wash your dryer, uh, cable ready. I put cable in here, uh, alarm system, everything.
1: Well, I concur with you. It's the big city effect. Uh, and now, with a post COVID environment, people want space. They do want to get away from the city, but, but be within the, I guess, commutable distance if they have to come in. So, what's interesting, I mean, this is now we're talking about. Fundamental shifts in uh, in trends, future trends. Uh, so we're speculating, but there's been a lot of theory that uh, people will uh, try to gravitate to suburbs or not close suburbs, like uh, half an hour from New York, but more of a an hour, an hour and a half. If they can telecommute a um, commute three, four days out of a week, then they're in great shape. Uh, if it's a blue color workers, not uh, not intellectual property workers, then they still have to commute depending where the jobs are. So it'll come down, in my opinion. If um, the area is nice yeah, and people can telecommute, you can go anywhere. I mean, not a thousand miles away, but an hour and a half away. Uh, years ago, I used to work in, in, in Manhattan and uh, lived in Plainsville, New Jersey. Well, This is a long time ago. Well, my wife went to school in, Phil- in Philadelphia for her optometry degree. We live half the way in the Plainsboro, New Jersey. And this was, you know, not a close commute. And then uh, I knew people who were even further out. They had an almost two-hour commute, but they only came into the city uh, twice a week. The rest, they work from home. This is software development technology people, right? But if you're dealing with blue-collar work, that is a different conversation. They, they have to go to work. They have to be physically there. And that's where the question is going to be um, uh, how commutable it is. But the substitution effect is absolutely true. Same thing happens here in Brooklyn. There's a continuous, as uh, people uh, don't want to pay Manhattan rents and then they gravitate to Brooklyn and Bronx and Queens and New Jersey. And uh, the, the higher the rents get in the city, uh, the affordability gets worse, the more attractive your product is because it's, it all comes down to affordability. What kind of money people can make and what they can afford. And in the New York area, as you know, one of the highest expenses uh, is the rent. That's, that's by far uh, number one. Uh, if you, I don't know exactly, but th- from what I've heard, uh, various ranges of rents take anywhere between half to 70%. Well, not just the rent, but the utilities and everything yet. 50 to 70% of the budget goes to rent. And it is a significant expense. It's, it's a big deal. So people are sensitive.
0: Yeah, well, I've been successful also with the, with some of the high end flips that I was doing from you know buyers coming in from New York and droves. So I've, I've had uh, you know great opp- you know opportunities with high end flips there. We kind of pivoted now to more affordable homes. I put one on the market, two on the market actually uh, last week Thursday. By Monday, I had six to eight offers on each, and Tuesday they were under contract.
1: Affordable note. range or high range?
0: Uh, affordable range. Uh, yeah. One with. Listed for two fifteen I got an offer and accepted for two thirty-two. Seventeen over list. Over the asking price. Yeah. Over the asking price. The other was two forty-five. I accepted the offer for two six fifteen over asking price. So that's really a hot market now. And um, you know, I'm, we pivoted from buying the high-end stuff to more of the affordable stuff. Easy Home Depot, Lowe's product, no high-end restoration hardware or you know. T- this uh, stuff that you have to design, easier one, two, three, no special delivery. So we're, we're pivoting to that. And now uh, we're enjoying that now and we see, we see a lot of opportunity is gonna come in that space to come because it's first time homebuyer, FHA, easy to qualify. You don't have to worry about putting 20% down, or, you know, going to the unknown. So we're focusing on that. And uh, with the notes, um, as you know, I'm a seconds guy. We buy a lot of seconds. We buy first also. Uh, we invest in seconds that start off with second mortgages. Uh, I think it's a really great investment if you know how to manage it. It's more work than first. The strategy there is to get the homeowner to pay and not take the property. So we see them paying their first, and, you know, uh, basically they're not paying a second, but their rent, where they live at, is in line with what we're asking for, for our second second mortgage plus their first. It's a high probability we're going to work something out because no one, lose the house and relocate.
1: You know? Emotional equity. If they're paying the first, there you go. and yep. they like the house, uh, you have a decent chance of getting them to reperform on your second. They might have forgotten the old line of credit that they've given up a long time ago. And, and now, hey, they're still living on your property. Still, uh, you still, you borrowed that money. Uh, and uh, it's, you, you should pay. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but it is emotional equity plus some real equity. As properties have appreciated Um there's real equity behind it and uh, uh, you, you have a better chance of getting them to reperform. Of course, you don't want a foreclosure.
0: Yeah. We mitigate risk through that by buying pools. I mean, if you buy onesie twosie, it's risky, but if you're going to, if you're buying pools 300 notes at a time plus or hundred plus notes at a time, then, you know, it, it works out for you. And then, you know, sometimes your losses become your gains. If you know what I mean, if you get a big payoff, and, uh, you know, and then you get wiped out from foreclosure, bankruptcy, or another loan. You know, your, gain, your losses pretty much offset your gains in that part of it. So,
1: you know, that space as well. Yeah, I, I, we talked about this. We should probably restart this conversation because I, I, I spoke a while back to Eddie Speed. Obviously, you know, Eddie. And it's always been a challenge to me how to invest in these small notes. We like investing in big notes. Um, here in New York City, distressed commercial debt. We don't. We actually like that stuff. Generally, only first. But the the challenge has been with the um, small seconds is that it's exactly that. You have to buy a pool. You have to buy a package, and you have to diversify the risk among many assets and then return on time. So it's almost like if I write you a check and you're running a fund or you're running a portfolio. Uh, it comes down to, does your return on time good enough? And the, is my return on investment for providing the capital good enough? And if you're taking the money from investors, the same exercise. How much uh, total return you can get on that pool? Again, one off agreed that that's not the approach at all. But on the pool, and is it worth your return on time? I don't know if you've done that analysis. We talked about this a while back. Yeah, uh, yeah. So any, okay, any, any good thoughts, right? If you write a million dollar check and you buy a pool of 20 notes at 50000 each, just for sake of the argument, okay? And you work it through your process. Uh, what kind of IRR can investors expect? Uh, and what, well, on the portfolio level, before you start splitting, how much is sweat worth and how much is money worth?
0: Yeah, uh, on a portfolio level with seconds, we're, we're tracking... Uh, high teens somewhere low 20s return on the the pool itself Uh, you know then it's not accounting all the expenses that's this you know foreclosure costs everything else nothing to do with uh, you know my operating expenses my rent payroll anything else we have asset managers that we calculate those costs in there as well those some of the cogs that we attribute to that Uh, you know we've had 18% when I first got started the returns were 26% but now has increased and vendors expenses vendors are more expensive now uh and we leverage a lot of stuff we used to do a lot of stuff in-house so i had a lot of payroll and a lot of stuff now we outsource our our custodian to do file audits we have our services we used to in-house service back in 2012 when i started uh you know buying pools and started to fund and buy notes now we have services that we leverage we have asset managers so we deal with a lot of vendors that we leverage to cut a lot of that cost. And again, that's another opportunity for us to manage data. So our time is not so much involved in all of the hands-on process uh, that go into place with that because it is a lot of work, but it's very profitable and it gives you an, op- an option on a property that's worth more versus buying, you guys buy a big million, $2 million dollar first mortgages, where somebody like Eddie and those guys, they buy low balance first, where it's 60000 100000 but it's a first mortgage. We can buy seconds the same uh, unpaid principal balance amount but cheaper because it's in second. And it gives us an option on a property that's worth more. So um, I, again, our goal is not to take the property, is to work it out. So, so it may take three months, six months, two years to work it out. Uh, but again, those are, we're leveraging vendors. Not pretty much, the only time we have in-house is managing the data and following up with the vendors. So um, over the years, it, for me, it was able to evolve from being a, a lot of work to just really systems and processes and managing vendors and follow-ups and really uh, helping us to increase returns. Um, pricing has increased because a lot of people, even the big uh, hedge funds from the first mortgage space because they have cheaper capital, we started to see them come into our space and buy you know, $10 million pools. And they don't sell it. They give it to a collection agency to work it out. Let it go for two, three years, and whatever didn't work out, they liquidate the pool and sell it. So um, that's created a lot of competition for us. Which
1: you know, yeah, yeah, I, I great comments, and it's as market matured and as the prices increased, the uh, inefficiency efficiency has has to increase. If you don't get your automation efficiency, you, you die. You can't survive yeah, in that yeah, because yeah. the returns are lower, and uh, unless you, 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 you can gotta use the time uh, you, you just it's not profitable business so but uh, great points and i, I am uh, really glad to hear you're very successful <laughs> let's chat uh uh some more just hold on I, I i gotta do oh i gotta do the next call i apologize so uh let's wrap up very quickly how people find you
0: oh sure it's uh b-i-l-a-l at nngcapitalfund.com you can go to our site check us out nngcapitalfund.com
1: thank you quan it was a pleasure to have you uh, I have to run to the next call uh, appreciate it love to have you again well, thank All you right. have a great day alright Mike ciao thank you for listening to
0: the Big Mike Fund Podcast to receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fund Book head to bigmikefund.com or visit Amazon and type Mike lot in Keep
1: listening and keep investing, Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.